Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. If you are a guest with us this morning, I hope that you have felt warmly welcomed thus far by our community. And if you are a guest with us, it may be helpful for you to know that here at Eastside, we have been on something of an extended preaching journey through the Revised Common Lectionary. And if you're not familiar with the lectionary, it is a three-year cycle of readings from the Old and from the New Testaments. There are normally uh, two readings from the Hebrew Bible, two readings from the New Testament. And here on, in year three, um, the lectionary has us spending a fair amount of time in the Gospel of Luke. And I just want to kind of preface this morning's reading because it's, I was talking to Ed about this before worship, and I've, I've been working on this text for a while, and it's a little tricky to say, to say it nicely. And as I read it, you may be a little bit um, taken aback if you've never heard it before. Um, but we're going to try to spend some time with it and see what, uh, what challenges it might have for us and what good news it may hold for us as well. So friends, as you're able, if you would, please stand with me in body or in spirit. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19 where Jesus tells a parable. There was a rich man. He was dressed in purple and fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. He was covered in sores. He longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died, and he was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue. I'm in agony in these flames. Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. Now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can come across there to us. He then said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. May he warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Friends, word of God for us, the people of God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, God who was, God who shall be, I ask that you would break into our present. 
that you would speak in these moments, that you would take these words that I have prepared, God, and that if it make you joyous, that you would speak through them, God, and as necessary, speak in spite of me. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations collectively of all of our hearts would indeed be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. God, our rock, God, our redeemer, God, our savior. In Christ's name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. Friends, you may be seated. So I have a lot of thoughts about this text. And if you've been around me in the last couple of weeks, two or three, you know that I've been wrestling with this one for a while. And I just want to begin by stating from the outset that this is a parable, and it must not only be read as a parable, but with a clear recognition that throughout his ministry, Jesus loves to employ hyperbole. He loves to exaggerate to make a point. He does this in our text this morning. And I also just want to name something that, that you may not notice if it's not pointed out. God is not only not the subject of this story, God isn't mentioned in the entire thing. And I begin here because a lot of people have said a lot of things about this morning's scripture throughout history and have made all kinds of deductions about God, about humanity, about the nature of reality, what happens when we die. The irony, of course, being, I think for most at least, I don't think most of us in this room actually want this text to be literally true. Because this parable, while it has some really important truths, needs to be carefully interpreted. So, let's walk through it and see if we can't figure out what Jesus is getting at. First thing we have to take note of is the fact that the rich man doesn't get a name. He goes unnamed. What we learn about him is he has a lot of wealth. And not just wealth, we're told it's extravagant. In the text, his wealth is his primary identifier. He isn't named because he doesn't need to be because he, in the story, is the epitome. Luke is describing an epitome. The man is the personification of not just wealth, but of greed and of selfishness. At the beginning of the story, we're not told his name, but we are told what he's wearing. Luke tells us he's in purple, which is essentially the first century version of Gucci. But Luke doesn't only tell us what he's wearing, he tells us that he eats. And apparently this man eats a lot. In fact, the NRSV says he is extravagantly dressed and he feasts sumptuously. Isn't that a good word? Sumptuously. Extravagance. No name, but we know what he's wearing and we know his consumption practices. Now, by way of contrast, there is... Another man in the text who does get a name, the other Lazarus, as I like to refer to him. And Lazarus sits at the front gate of the rich man's gated community, seemingly hoping for some kind of help from our wealthy counterpart. Luke goes on to tell us that essentially Lazarus is not well, he is not healthy, and in an age and in a world without disability or medical care for the poor, this guy's in bad shape. And not only is he in bad shape medically and starving, Luke tells us that he would literally eat the scraps from the unnamed man's table. But to add insult to injury, we're also told that dogs come and lick his sores. And 
I don't know about you, but if a dog came up to me and started licking my sores, I would move, right? Which is Luke's way of nodding to the fact that mobility is an issue for this man. He probably is stuck in this spot, literally at the mercy of the rich man outside of his gate. But Lazarus, we're told, was white noise. He was invisible to the unnamed epitome of wealth. And then says they both die. Fun text, right? Not your first choice for a kid's church. Lazarus, we're told, gets carried off by angelic beings and goes to be with the only other named person in the story, Father Abraham. And our wealthy consumer gets buried in the shadow land, the underworld, the place where things go to die. And I almost wish the story would just kind of stop here, but it doesn't. Luke makes this unnamed depiction of wealth look even worse. The man, the man won't even talk to Lazarus. He actually goes to Abraham and then asks Abraham to make Lazarus come down and give him a drink of water because it was apparently really hot down there. Which one commentator notes that the wealthy man is still trying to boss Lazarus around, even in the afterlife. And of course, Abraham says no a second time. After the man asks that Lazarus be resurrected to go back and tell his brothers that they better change their ways or they're going to have the same fate, to which Abraham says, even if someone rises from the dead, your brothers aren't going to change. So rough text. Now, if we push this story to its literal conclusion, to me, it's pretty problematic, and it actually doesn't really jive with the whole of the gospel message or the fuller picture of Christ. But this is not the only place where the gospel accounts do this, where they are parts of Jesus' teaching that make us take a step back and say, wow, that's intense. Which is, again, why I would strongly caution against reading this text in isolation, and I would challenge each of you in this room to spend time, as the lectionary does, in all four Gospels and have an awareness of the other texts that are contained therein. All that being said, though, there may be some things uh, that we in the wealthiest and most powerful country in the world might need to pay attention to in this story. Namely, the fact that the unnamed man is the epitome of greed, and Jesus clearly does not appreciate greed. If you push narcissism to its furthest end, greed is what you come to. A softer word might be selfish. But what Jesus knew then and we know today is that as we look at our world, greed is a real thing. Amen? Narcissism seems to be happening on a larger scale than ever. People can be pretty selfish. I can be pretty selfish. And Jesus is right. We do leave Lazarus out at the gate, and we don't take him a cold cup of water or a hot meal. And if he could walk, and he trifled through our car looking for something of value, even if it was spare change, most of us would get mad and probably post something on a neighborhood group. Because sometimes what we don't always realize is that all of humanity's bad behavior isn't equal. Some, some people are in survival mode, right? The world we live in is not equitable. It's just not. 
Some people do have a whole lot more than others. I have a whole lot more than most other people in this world. And this text challenges unbridled and unchecked consumption of resources. From clothing to food, the ministry of the Christ challenges inequity. It challenges waste, unchecked luxury, not taking care of the people in the outside of our gated communities. And the call of the gospel, as our supporting readings from the lectionary also drove home, is to stop. It's to repent of greed, of selfishness, of insatiable appetites for more and more of whatever. You can fill in the blank. The nameless man was defined not even by a name, but by what he wore and what he ate. That's just not a very compelling existence, amen? He could have blessed Lazarus, but he chose not to. And it makes me wonder if the subtext is that the rich man died of a heart attack because of how much food he ate, right? And Lazarus died of starvation. It's inequity, right? If they would have just come together, maybe neither of them would have died, and the text would have turned out very differently. Sometimes friends just taking care of one another just actually makes the world better for everybody. Taking care of our environment is going to make the world a lot better for our children, amen? It can be really hard to look around to read the news and to understand why so many of our world's leaders seem to have a hard time understanding this basic reality. But I think what's essentially happening is there's a warring of philosophical economies. On the one hand, you have those who see the world through an economy of scarcity. If you have, then I don't have. Or you have those who see the world through the lens of the gospel, which teaches an economy of abundance, that there actually is enough to go around for everybody. Now, I have two big issues with this text, specifically the way that it ends, and they're directly related. My first issue is that there is no repentance in the story. We're actually told there's no repentance in the story. The rich man's character, his heart, it doesn't change. He's just really hot down there. He never says he's sorry, he never apologizes, he just says it's really hot. At the same time, the other piece that I take issue with it's not just the fact that he doesn't repent, but that Abraham would lead you to believe that it wouldn't have mattered even if he had, or for his five brothers. The text seemed to say that they have all missed their chance, and now they simply have to live with their eternal fate. And friends, I just don't believe that God ever gives up on anyone, or that anyone is beyond hope, either in this life or in the life to come. And I just need to name that because texts like this have been used to create troubling notions of what may or may not happen to the fate of human beings, at least certain select ones. My image of God's future is that it's going to be a lot like a giant party that everyone is invited to, and the only people that aren't a part are the people that would rather stand outside and not enter. Because I believe, friends, God always keeps the door open to all of us. And it's true, the unnamed man in the story never repents, he never apologizes, he never says he's sorry, he never says he did anything wrong. The only sorry that he offers is that he is now in a very uncomfortable place. I think the point being, his continued behavior simply reaffirms the way that he had already been living before he died. Bossing Lazarus around, 
subjugating him, not taking him seriously. The point I think Abraham is making is that if the fires of Sheol haven't changed your heart, I'm not sure that you're going to change the way that you're being human. Don't be like the rich man and wait for things to get really, really bad before you choose to become a better kind of human. I think the message of the text is start becoming the kind of person God is calling you to be right now. Don't wait for anything. I think it was Dallas Willard who said that this life is practiced for forever. He might have stolen that from C.S. Lewis. But we can begin today by the grace of God to become the kind of people we want to be forever. This life is rehearsal for eternity. The gospel challenges me to work towards being an eternal optimist, and trust me, I'm not naturally an optimist by any stretch of the imagination. But the gospel, the God I believe, is revealed to us in the person of Christ. Our gospel is a gospel that never gives up hope on anyone, no matter what. Can I get an amen? God never gives up. There's always grace. There's always hope. You can always turn it around. It's not to say there aren't consequences in life, pain, loss, grief. It's not to say we don't screw things up and then have to live with some of that. But the resurrection is God's power play in making it clear to humanity that no mistake must remain in perpetuity forever. The gospel message is that our God is the capital E, eternal, capital O, optimist. The eternal optimist for each of you in this room and for our planet. God's love never fails, never ends. So friends, by the grace of the eternal optimist, may you, may we all become the kind of people that we want to be forever. Let's start today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, everyone said, Amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.